Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello everyone, and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine, so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable and successful for years to come. Today our topic is one that has been making headlines lately, and that the imperatives for self-reporting, overpayments, violations of self-referrals, that's all been in the OIG news on their posts, and some of the things have come out also from a, a CMS post as well. So just a little history, uh, back in 2010, the OIG and HHS together, I should say in conjunction, established a Medicare self-referral disclosure protocol. There's acronyms for that, SRDP, that sets forth processes to enable providers of services and suppliers to self-disclose actual or potential violations of the physician self-referral statute. So along with this, there's also some um, rules that were published in a 2016 CMS final rule that talks about reporting and returning overpayments that may or may not also fall under these protocols. But this week, I have our uh, fellow member, NSCHB member and uh, healthcare attorney, Amanda Waish, that she's going to be back on our podcast today. We're excited to have her and discuss these topics and how the process works. So just a reminder on Amanda's impressive background. Amanda operates a national healthcare legal practice and is licensed in both Ohio and Florida. She primarily focuses her practice on healthcare employment law, corporate law, and healthcare litigation, and advises all types of employers, in particular healthcare providers, including hospitals and physicians, on various matters, including self-disclosures, overpayments, and recently has been busy with the vaccine mandates and those legal challenges, as we talked about in, a few, in uh, previous podcasts. So there's no better person I can find to discuss this topic with me today. So Amanda, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Terry. I appreciate being here. No problem. So I'm going to just kind of go right into what we're talking about and kind of break into the conversation. So self-disclosures, I've seen you do a couple of posts about that. I've seen through our organization, the NSCHBC, some emails flying around on our listserv regarding that. Some practices don't even know what that is or what their responsibility is to disclose or report an issue. So with all of the physician vendor relationships out there and physicians owned ASC and they self-refer to some things that they have financial crossovers. Can you discuss what that is exactly? Sure, Terry. So I'll just try to summarize this very briefly. Um, healthcare is one of the most heavily regulated industries in the United States. Um, I think it's the second most heavily regulated industry next to uh, nuclear energy, actually. Um, and so we know that it's heavily regulated. And so waiting through those regulations can be very confusing. So just in a nutshell, uh, healthcare providers need to be cognizant of the anti-kickback statute. They also need to be cognizant of the Stark Law, uh, which applies to physicians and entities to which physicians refer. And then they also need to be on the lookout um, for other federal and state laws that may apply to the individual arrangement that they're entering into. So anytime a healthcare provider is entering into a contractual arrangement with another healthcare provider or a vendor, or they're looking to set up a joint venture, um, we want to make sure that the parties engage uh, a healthcare attorney to look at these issues 
and analyze under both federal and state law that the arrangement is uh, compliant, both on the federal and state side, um, and that any um, any safeguards that need to be put in place are put in place, and that the written agreements are compliant as well. So I have a question as, as we kind of we go into this. Um, and for those of you listeners that are listening in, <laughs> a little levity to our conversation here. So many of us uh, work from home or have pivoted to virtual only, uh, and we have a dedicated office. But for some reason, my husband decided that it, I was lonely during the day when he would go out golfing. So he brought home two four-month-old cats, <laughs> kittens, brats. <laughs> so as I have the door to my office closed, I can see little paws trying to get in and they keep jumping up trying to turn the handle. So if you hear any background Aww. noise, <laughs> I'm it's like, your, just kitty cat. stop. <laughs> my kids are grown and out of the house. And now you have small kids and, you know, you, that's a balance. But I'm like, I didn't want to start this again. So this is funny to me. I can keep, <laughs> I keep hearing them as I'm trying to be all professional. So just putting a little levity out there. So back to our topic, I'm just curious, um, where do you or where can physicians find these rules exactly? Is there a list within the um, OIG or the HHS department that says this is what you can and can't do or this is when you need to report? Yes. So if you think of the Department of Health and Human Services as the overarching umbrella, there's kind of two pillars that we would look to underneath that umbrella. The first is the OIG, the Office of Inspector General, and that is going to be the uh, department that's in charge of, or the division rather, that's in charge of uh, enforcing and giving us guidance on the anti-kickback statute, civil monetary penalties law, um, and also even some false claims act information. Um, and then the other pillar that we'll look to is CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And that's going to give us guidance and regulation on the Stark law. So those two agencies, CMS and OIG, under the Department of Health and Human Services umbrella is going to give us lots of guidance. They have um, lots of training that's available, um, overviews, um, examples of permissible relationships and exceptions and safeguards and lots of guidance. And then, of course, links to, you know, the, the statutes and the regulations, which are, are pretty dry reading. Um, but but they are very great resources. Okay, so that's good. So there, at least there is a list somewhere that they can they can contact. Now, my question is just because I want our listeners to have, kind of have an understanding of what this is in a in a lay terms kind of way. So is this something that, for example, let's say that you have an orthopedic practice that also owns a uh, an ASC, so an ambulatory surgery center, and they only tell their patients that's where they can have all their surgeries if they just do outpatient. Is that where you have to disclose this information? And if you don't, you collect money, that's a problem? Or is this something completely different when it comes to that self-referral violation? So uh, when we look at physicians having an ownership in an ambulatory surgery center, we need to look at uh, the anti-kickback statute and the Stark law, and then also any, any state laws that would be applicable to that arrangement. Um, certainly, we know that physicians can own and invest in surgery centers um, because we, we see that happening nationwide and it's, it's a common occurrence. Um, so it is permissible under the anti-kickback statute. Um, it also is permissible under the Stark law. And then of course, we've got to be cognizant of, of state law as well. 
Now, healthcare is really unique. You know, I'm going to say that throughout this podcast. It's, it's unique. Not only is it heavily regulated, but it also requires certain disclosures and, and situations. So physicians may be required to disclose to the patient that they're referring the patient to an entity that the physician has a financial arrangement with. So we could see this with uh, if, if there's if the hospital that the physician is referring the patient to is owned by the physician. There are certain disclosures that have to be made. This is a physician-owned hospital. Same thing could occur with an ASC. I'm referring you to an ASC where I have an ownership. Um, also, we, we see requirements with ancillary services like MRI, CAT scans, PET scans. There may be a requirement that the physician disclose any ownership arrangement. That could be under federal law. That could be under the, the Stark law or the anti-kickback statute. And that could also be a requirement under state law. So again, we want to make sure that we're utilizing um, the knowledge and talents of a healthcare attorney um, to make sure that the physicians are, are being compliant with their duty to notify the patient. Now, you did say something very interesting in your question um, where, the, where the physician says, this is where you have to go. Um, we have to be really careful that, that, we, that we don't use that language with patients. Um, right. It's, you know, patients always have a choice, right? They have an um, option, so again, exactly. An, right. Another, you know, healthcare, heavily regulated. So, uh, you know, we have patient rights and, and patient choice requirements. And so um, we want to make sure that, that we're cognizant of those as well. Okay. Yeah. Because it's interesting because I have um, so many patients and so many um well, so many clients that actually patients have actually contacted me just randomly. They found my website and they're asking about how to code something or they got an EOB. I'm thinking, this is so strange that a patient's calling me or, you know, trying to get some information. I try to, you know, help them as much as they can. But one thing I noticed with clients and I, and, or if I, you know, teach a, a class on coding, billing and, and compliance, I said, first of all, you, it's kind of like having a, a hold on the whole industry. You can't say to a patient, that well and it's not only non-compliant but i'm sure you're violating some kind of state rules that you have to have your surgery here you have to have your x-ray at this idtf and you have to have this you know remote patient monitoring device especially if it's all physician owned or they have a financial incentive there without disclosing that is that accurate I, the only reason i'm saying that is because it seems like physician owned products facilities entities where there is a relationship tends to flag for some overutilization Sure. And, and I would say, so obviously I do a lot of this. I represent a lot of physicians um, and I want physicians to be entrepreneurial. Um, and I firmly believe in physician-led medicine and physician-led facilities. Me too. Um, and yeah, I, you know, and um, I've been part of some really successful uh, joint ventures that are, that are physician-led. And so these, so you're right. I mean, sometimes uh, they, they carry with them a, a bad rap or, you know, or that, you know, they could be, they could lend themselves to overutilization. Um, and that's why we have the disclosures, the disclosure requirements that you, that you let patients know where you have, you know, a financial interest so that patients are on notice. But I always tell my physicians, you know, use it as a marketing tool that, that you firmly believe in that this is, the, in the best interest of the patient, or you're so proud of this facility that you're an owner in it and you're part of it. And, you know, you help lead its administration or its operations 
and use it as a, you know, I'm very proud to be part of this facility uh, because that's why you invested in it, right? Or or made it part of your practice is that you you believe in it and it's good medicine. Um, and so I think that carries with it a lot of uh, a lot of weight when physicians are advising patients, you know, what next steps are because patients put a lot of trust in their physicians. No, I agree. And I do you also advise your clients? I mean, I know I do, and, and I hope I'm on the right track to always give a patient an option. Say, so here is, you know, I do have a, and to also put in writing that they have that disclosure, that they have that financial interest, not just referring to it verbally, but basically saying, so you could have your surgery at the hospital. Here's the estimated cost, but you'd have to find that out. If you have it in our outpatient surgery center, here is what the cost is. And by the way, you know, we do charge a facility fee and it is physician owned. Is, is that how you um, kind of profess to, to bring that up to the patient when they're talking financials and their share of cost? Yes. So that's very good advice, Terry. I would definitely advise clients to have it in writing because you can always point to, well, here is the brochure that we give our patients. This is, this is our policy and something in writing is always going to be obviously a better proof than a he said, she said situation. Right. Okay. I also, um, there could be some requirements in the laws to require the physician to give options. So for example, the, if you if the physician owns an MRI or a CT or a PET machine, you may be required to say, I want you to go to this facility that I have an ownership in, but here are your options within a five mile radius. So you may be required to do that. Um, so you, you want to be cognizant of those requirements. Right. And, you know, one of the things that, that Amanda mentioned is when you do enter into these um, arrangements or agreements, try not to just do it on your own. You definitely need a healthcare attorney, which is what Amanda is as well. And the reason that we, we mention that is because, and I say this too, when, when you're, you know, trying to negotiate a, an insurance contract, you know, and credential one of your providers, get somebody who knows what they're doing. Try not to handle it all in-house if you don't have that kind of staff, because the, you know, these attorneys, these personnel, they're, these legal minds, um, they're basically getting all this information. This is their job. And you mentioned federal, state, and possibly even Stark laws. I would probably guess that most physicians are not familiar with every single rule. And not only do you have to be compliant on the federal level, then having to weed through different state rules, and they're all different. I mean, I'm right now mm -hmm. dealing with telehealth on New Jersey, New York, and then California, which is completely different than New York and, and Illinois, for example. And then you, you talk about Stark. So do you agree that, you know, getting that legal mind or that legal person that can engage with them to make sure that everybody's, you know, I's are dotted, T's are crossed or is important. Absolutely. I mean, again, healthcare is heavily regulated and we can't be an expert in everything. So I think it's really important to have people on your team um, that, you know, that are experts in certain areas and you may have to have multiple members on your team, depending on, you know, what the issues are. And, uh, you know, I was involved in, unfortunately, I've, I've been involved more, <laughs> more than I want to say in situations where there have been some really awesome, you know, corporate attorneys or, or litigators, but they've missed the healthcare issues. Yes. And then it's important, you know, for them to have, you know, a, a partner on their side to help navigate the healthcare issues, because sometimes healthcare issues can help sort out the litigation or the corporate issues, because there's only 
there may only be one way to do it in healthcare. You know, this is the way it has to be done because of the regulations. And sometimes it's counterintuitive. We don't see that in other industries. Um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like, we don't know what we don't know. And it's, and in healthcare, it's okay to say that and to find someone that can be an expert and help you out there. Yeah, because I that's, agree. you know, that's an expectation in healthcare is that, um, you know, when we, when we need help or we make a mistake, you know, we, we disclose it and learn from it and, and improve. No, I agree. And the one thing when I mentioned before utilization, let me just clarify what I meant. So I've been involved in several practices that have started with, you know, uh, ASCs. They, a lot of practices start small and start with their own independent testing facility or an IDTF. And you know, anything you, you haven't done or you haven't been billing for, or you've subbed out or you only bill a little bit, and then all of a sudden your volume increases, you know, trifold, that is going to trigger somebody to take a look. So I've had several practices, let's say just on CT scans and PET scans, where all of a sudden, you know, they had a couple here and there, they had it in their office or they had it as a referral base, and all of a sudden now they're doing, you know, a, a, a volume per year of 100 to 200, mm -hmm. and you've got a payer going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And you have financial interest. Again, it's not saying that you can't do it. It just now, not only are you having to justify on the other end of, you know, medical necessity, make sure coding correctly and all that, and that they were warranted, but now you're going to have to justify, are these patients being referred over just because you own it or because they need it? And is it just for your patients or do you, are you bringing in outside uh, scheduling uh, patients as well? And I guess that's even another thing to think about, right? Absolutely. Yes. You want to be, um, so some of these exceptions that allow for physician ownership or physician referral is really meant to be an extension of the physician's practice or, you know, there are, there are many, um, I guess, guardrails and requirements that you may have to have in place. And so, uh, and so you're, you're kind of hitting all of them, Terry, you know, are you accepting outside referrals? Are you, is this an extension of your practice? Right. Um, are you meeting medical necessity? So, you know, in those instances, not only do you want an attorney to help you navigate through those issues, but, you know, it may be helpful to also have an auditor come in or, you know, someone that is, you know, or, you know, uh, someone that can review medical records or review your policies and is more operational yes. um, to come in and do an assessment um, because that's not what attorneys do, right? We rely on, you know, experts and consultants at the NFC HBC to come in and, and do an assessment and say, yes, we've set this up correctly and here's what they're doing. And um, so it's, I think it's always a great idea to self audit yourself. And, you know, it is a requirement as part of your compliance program um, that you do that self assessment. Exactly. So that's what we do. We do the audits and everything. And then we say, you know what, we need to bring in a healthcare attorney to get some of these, you know, <laughs> integrity agreements, these self referral agreements, you know, everything, um, you know, really in place so that your language looks good. And if it's ever questioned, that you have something to fall back on, which okay, so now that leads me to the part of this that talks about overpayments. And I actually had a funny story about this just with with credit balances. And I know this isn't part of this, but I was just uh, on a podcast. Uh, with actually one of our members, Sean Weiss, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about credit balances and how it's a responsibility to make sure you refund those to whatever entity 
is owed to them, whether it be the patient or the payer or whatever. And we were just having a conversation and we got such good feedback about people from both of us saying, oh my gosh, we didn't even think of that. We we're just thinking of, you know, being prepared for an audit and so on and so on. And then about two weeks later, after that podcast aired, I got a check in the mail for $71 and 14 cents from a local hospital that three Perfect. years ago, <laughs> three years ago, I scheduled an MRI and their machine was down and I never had it done, but I had to bring in a $75 check uh, as a deposit based on my insurance. And they wouldn't give it back to me when I left. They said, no, you've already put it across the counter. So now we have to process it and we'll get it back to you. Well, I forgot about it. And so then all of a sudden I get this money and I didn't know what it was for. I forgot. So I called this hospital and I said, what is this? Like, oh, we, we actually, and she joked, she goes, yeah, we just heard a podcast and we just made sure that we just like, oh my gosh, we need to address this. And I started <laughs> laughing and I'm like, oh, okay. And she goes, wait are you that Terry Fletcher? You said, oh, I'm like, that would be me. So it's kind of funny how many, how people actually do listen to what we're trying to tell them. So I just thought that was funny to me where it's like, yeah, you got to do yeah. that. But getting to overpayment. So how does that fall into part of this as far as the, the self-reporting or self-disclosing? Absolutely, Terry. So again, I'm going to say it. I can't say it enough during this podcast. Keep saying it. Healthcare, <laughs> healthcare is unique. Healthcare is unique. So you know, providers are required to have a corporate compliance plan. Part of that corporate compliance plan is doing ongoing auditing and monitoring. And again, it's all about finding mistakes and improving upon it and learning from those mistakes. And then once we find a mistake, we have to evaluate, you know, what do we do with that? And in healthcare, again, very unique. We have a duty to self-report and to correct any identified overpayments. And in fact, that was that that thought, um, that mantra was was strengthened with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and you know, better known as, as Obamacare, where there was an affirmative duty placed on a provider to refund any identified overpayments within sixty days. And if that was not done, that is an automatic violation of the False Claims Act. And so, um, you know, so again, the uniqueness here is that the government is expecting healthcare providers to self audit, identify issues and correct them within an appropriate time frame, um, or else there could be civil or, you know, criminal penalties associated with that. What's interesting, you mentioned something about all healthcare entities, corporations are required to have a corporate compliance plan. I'm finding that when I ask for them, most of them do not have that. Is there a violation for not having that? Because I do see that right on the OIG website. Yes. So here's the problem. So <laughs> providers, when they participate in Medicare and they, they enroll in Medicare, and then we know that um, uh, they need to revalidate every so often with Medicare, they have to check a box that they have a compliance program. And so or, or they cannot go further. It's kind of a, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200 type thing. So when you enroll in Medicare and when you revalidate with Medicare, you are checking a box that you have a corporate compliance program. So you want to make sure that what you're stating is accurate. Um, so if, if Terry Fletcher is asking you if you have a corporate compliance program <laughs> and the answer is no, um, you know, that could, you know, we need to start there. Also, if you're participating in Medicare Advantage plans, so, you know, you have a contract with, with UA, you know, United Healthcare and you participate on their PPO, HMO, and then their 
Medicare Advantage platform, you're going to be signing an attestation that you have a corporate compliance program. Um, it's, it's a requirement. And so, uh, again, you want to make sure that what you're attesting to and the boxes that you're checking are accurate. Are accurate. Yeah, because you're, you could be lying if you're not. I had a practice a few right. years back that um, one of their United Healthcare policies, they were trying to negotiate and the uh, plan came back and said, well, can we see your corporate compliance plan? And they said, well, we're, it's still in the works. We don't have one. And they, I was like, oh no. And I was mm -hmm. not aware of that. So that's one of my first questions now. Um, and I just was looking at them as they were trying to negotiate. Well, United Healthcare came back and said, you've never had one ever since you um, signed with us. Well, long story short, they took back three years worth of money saying yep. you weren't entitled mm -hmm. to that money. And that was in the millions of dollars. So you know, we're, we don't talk about this lightly. Make sure you're reading what you're entering into, your, what you're signing. And also, before you enter into it, know what the expectation is and what the requirements are, not only for Medicare, but, you know, like Amanda said, those MA plans and your commercial plans, because you're checking a box. You're saying that I want to participate with your plan to get money from your plan, and you don't want to be in violation of those federal or state or payer rules because that just would be a legal nightmare. Can't even imagine. So I guess yeah, I can. That's actually. a really, yeah, <laughs> that's a great story, Carrie. Um, it's an unfortunate story, but I'm glad that you're sharing that uh, because that's what can happen. And, you know, those rules were changed over the last few years. So it used to be you, you should have a corporate compliance plan and that was like your get out of jail free card. That's what we called it. Right. <laughs> you, if, if you, if you had one, then that would negate any criminal intent. So that's what we called it. A, a get out of jail free card. Now, now not only do you have to have one, but you have to show that you're meaningfully utilizing it, that, yes. that you're following your you're policies following and it. procedures. Um, so you have to show evidence that you are, you know, acting in furtherance of your corporate compliance program. And I, I've been involved in a couple of OIG desk audits, so just routine audits, but the OIG is auditing not only the medical records, but then there's a whole nother audit of, do you have a corporate compliance program and show me all your activities over the last three years? And they're very particular. And so, um, so I, you know, I'll say to providers, um, if you, if Terry Fletcher is asking you if you have a corporate <laughs> compliance plan, I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> or if Amanda Wage is asking you as well. <laughs> well, one of the things I noticed that in many practices that I audit, and you know, it's funny because my auditing may be a little different. I don't, I don't just audit for what most auditors do out there. Obviously, I audit for payers, but when I audit for practices, my job to me is not only to give them peace of mind that they either are or not compliant and then how we can fix and educate and change that and make sure that they are moving forward. But I always find a lot of money left on the table as well, which is interesting mm -hmm. to do that. But the other thing that I find a lot is when I do have a non-compliant provider, I say, okay, so this provider looks like has been non-compliant for a while. And there was a discussion with that provider, but there was never any penalty or consequences and they're still doing the same thing. So how are you fulfilling your, you know, your agreement, your compliance plan that you have? It can't just be sitting there dusting away on a shelf. It, it has to be something that's an, an active live plan that's, that's working all the time. Yeah, that's um, really great advice, Terry. Um, I will often use, I call them corrective action plans. 
um, you could you could call or performance improvement plans. You can call them whatever. Um, but if you find a mistake and if you don't find it yourself and it's found by a third party, like you know, like like a payer, usually they'll let you come back and say, you know what, mea culpa, I'll do this corrective action plan or performance improvement plan, and you know, at the end of the time period, we'll you know do a reevaluation and see how I've improved and. They want to see meaningful improvement, and that can be a really good settlement um, tool that I that I have in my toolbox. But to your point, Terry, the provider has to meaningfully participate, and by not participating and by blowing it off and not showing any meaningful changes and improvements, you know that could carry with it some culpability, especially under the False Claims Act, because the standard there is either is actual knowledge or you should have known. So I, I call it the ostrich in the sand. I know that there's an issue, but I'm not doing anything about it. I'm just, I'm not going to change my ways. Right. And that goes against the mantra of what we expect in the healthcare industry. Now, a question comes up quite a bit. And, and I, for me anyway, I don't know if this comes up for you. I know you're dealing, you're probably used to dealing with bigger corporations, healthcare entities, you know, um, something that has you know, 50 or more physicians. And I do, I do have several clients or a couple of clients that, that do have 30 plus physicians and providers, but a lot of my clients are either single practitioners, um, up to five providers. And so I do have that, I hate to say the little guy, but the, the smaller practices and a lot of the smaller practices, when we talk corporate, they don't think it applies to them. Can you speak to that? And just, you know, this is, unfortunately, I, I mean, I don't know if it's fortunate or fortunate, but it is kind of a one size fits all, but it does apply to everybody, right? Sure. I have done self-disclosures for large hospitals and health systems, and I have done self-disclosures for a solo practitioner, okay. a, a single, you know, a, a, an office. You know, physician practice that has one physician. So I've done self-disclosures that run the gamut and you'll hear, the, you know, you'll hear the government say compliance is everyone's job and it applies to everyone, no matter what size they are, you know, a, 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 you know, a smaller physician practice does not need as large of a corporate compliance plan as a health system, right? So it is scalable, but the concept still apply still applies. and the rules okay. still apply yeah so everybody has to realize that regardless of the the size of your practice the size of what of or how many physicians you have you know um, big corporation small corporation aco entity whatever a corporate's a corporate compliance plan a corrective action plan um, something that you understand these self-disclosure protocols you really have to have something in place in writing that reflects that you understand the rules of engaging in these contracts, engaging in these um, payer contracts, and you know any of these um, federal entities, uh, state entities, or again commercial plans. It's just really important you know the rules before signing off because you're making promises that you have things in place or that you understand what you signed and you just don't want to be caught without that. I wanted to just comment on one more thing before we kind of wrap it up for today. When we talk about, we, when we talked about the self disclosures and that relationship for those outside entities, but just again on the, the overpayments, is, does that also go with not just, you know, if you've got more money than was anticipated or you, you got overpaid by a payer, this also falls for patients, secondary insurances and all that, correct? It does, yeah, okay. it does. 
Um, and I think, you know, when we, when we find an issue, you know, when we find an overpayment, there's a lot of different options that we have. So, you know, we've been talking, you know, you mentioned, you know, secondary payers, uh, you know, co-payments, co-insurance, um, you know, refunds that are due, you know, we could have, you know, those are easily fixable. Um, but when we have different, you know, larger compliance issues, we may need to look into, okay, do we do a larger, you know, voluntary refund to the payer? And usually I'm thinking, you know, your, your Medicare administrative contractor, or do we have to do, is it so egregious that we have to look at doing a self-disclosure to the OIG, possibly even the DOJ, the Department of Justice, depending on how big, you know, how big the issue is? Um, or is it a violation of the Stark Law where we need to do a self-disclosure to CMS? So there's, there's lots of different options, and it, there are lots of factors that go into making that decision. Um, but, you know, you want to make sure that when you discover an issue that you address the issue, correct it appropriately, um, and, and then, you know, improve on, you know, so that the, the entity continues to move on and, and provide healthcare services. Correct. And here's something that I'm going to bring up for listeners and, and you can kind of chime in of how you're feeling about this. So not everything is black and white when it comes to these self-disclosures. And let me just give you two examples that have come up in, in what I do. And again, when I audit for practices, because also part of my auditing is education on coding, billing and reimbursement. So right now we have some 2021 new guidelines for evaluation and management services, which are the office visits in the office. We also have telehealth, as everybody knows, we've had to do that since 2020 with the pandemic and so and we've had some flexibilities there well there's some specific black and white rules of what you can do to bill an office visit with an audio and video versus an office visit um, that is only or I should say an ENM that is audio only and you can't bill an office visit code under the federal rules the other thing is but let me just kind of back up there the non-black and white would be, let's say I was doing an audit and I felt that a lot of level four visit codes were really more level threes or fives, fours. Unfortunately, that is, it can be very objective and subjective. So it's not necessarily a, a you know, a voluntary refund there, but if it is black and white, so let's say you build, um, you know, several of your providers submitted bills for several office visit codes for Medicare that were audio only, that's a violation of an actual FAQ rule that they have in the 1135 waivers. It's a violation. Let's say that you do chronic care management. This is one of the biggest ones I'm seeing right now. And that's, a, that's still a, a remote function where the patient's not there, but it's following up on a patient for a total of 20 minutes a month. Well, the problem we're having is some of these third-party payers, or I'm sorry, third-party companies that are administrating the CCM or helping to manage it are using offshore virtual assistants. And you can't do that. Anything that is billed from a non-face-to-face -face under the Social Security Act, you cannot go outside the U.S. for that and get Medicare payments. So, and sometimes they do lie about that, that they're using offshore, you know, India, outside the country, whatever. And so I have found a couple of companies that are doing that. And when we found it, we immediately felt, you know, self-reported, filled out the information we needed to under the SRDP and um, paid it back on a voluntary refund. But I do have a lot of practices that are like, well, can't we just from this point on move on? Now, if it's black and white, you really have to, once you identify it, you have 60 days. Is that correct, Amanda, to get that back? Yeah. So 
Um, so the rules, so there, there's been some interpretation, some case law and some guidance that's been issued around that 60-day repayment rule. And basically what the, the general rule is, is once you discover that you may have an issue, you have, you have six months to investigate and find out, okay, how egregious is this issue? Is, so to your point, Terry, you've done some of the research. Okay, is this a black and white issue? Is this a gray area? You, you have six months to wrap your arms around the issue and tangibly identify it. And then if you, at the end of the six months, if you've determined, yes, we do have an overpayment, then you've got 60 days to refund that. So essentially think of it as like an eight month process. Um, but when, at, and then, but then the question is, okay, well, okay, 60 days, what, what do I do? Right. Do I refund it? Do I self-disclose? What do I do? And there's usually three factors that I look to primarily. One, what was the intent of the parties? Um, did, you know, it could be a black and white issue. It could be a gray area, but was it just that the physician, you know, that violated the black and white rule was misinformed? Did they misunderstand what that FAQ was saying? Or did they get some bad advice from a consultant or they went and heard something wrong at a conference? I mean, I've heard it all and people make mistakes, right? People make mistakes. We're human. Um, we make mistakes. Or was the physician shown, I've had this, <laughs> here's the coding book. Here's what it says, doc, and you're violating it. And he says, I don't care. I'm, I've been doing it this way forever. I'm going to do it anyway. So, right. you know, factor number one is what was the intent of the parties? H how did we get here? Number two is how long has this been going on? Is this a relatively new rule that kind of everybody screwed up and, you know, it's, hey, now that we've realized it pretty quickly, we're back on track or has this been going on for years? And you, is, is this a failure of your compliance program or a failure, or, you know, lack of education? How long has this been going on? And then three, how much are we talking here? Right. Um, are we, you know, the, for a self-disclosure to the OIG, the minimum settlement amount was recently raised from $10,000 to $20,000. So if I'm looking at something that's, you know, four or $5,000, I probably am not going to advise my client to do a full-blown disclosure that it's going to result in that four or $5,000 becoming $20,000. Right. Um, unless, again, depending on the exposure, you know, the intent of the party is how long it's been going on. Um, you know, if it's a blatant kickback violation and somebody recognized it rather quickly, and it is, you know, it's four or $5,000. And I'm like, hey, you're lucky to get out of this with $20,000 settlement. Let's get this wrapped up. You know, I'm right. So it's all right. going to be a facts and circumstances um, analysis. But that's, in a nutshell, you know, the three factors that I use and giving my clients the pros and cons of do you voluntarily disclose or, you know, or voluntarily refund or do you do a self-disclosure? Do you do self-disclosure? Yeah. So a lot of factors that go in this. Looks like there's a lot of moving parts, lots of, um, information that you may or may not have. And so this is where, you know, I'd like to invite you if you, if you need somebody, if you need a, 
uh, gifted attorney that understands this, please go to our website at nschb.org, find the consultant tab, and you can type in the first name, Amanda's name, and uh, it shall come up. So if, you, if you're looking for that, if you're looking to make sure that you have that required corporate compliance plan, you can also contact Amanda. If you're looking to see if you, you know, how you're doing in your office, feel free. You can also go to the same tab and, and type in Terry and, and Fletcher. And, and again, it was Amanda Waish. And uh, we, we're more than happy to help you. So we just want to make sure you had that. So today we'd like to thank Amanda for being our, our in our podcast today, her legal insights into this very timely topic. And hopefully she answered some of those tough questions for you and armed you with some new knowledge you didn't have before and a way to uh, make things work. So Amanda, thank you for being part of the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me again, Terry. I always love being on your podcast and chatting with you. Very fun. So listeners, we would like to announce our first annual telehealth virtual summit. That will be February 24th and 5th. This is a two-day webcast-based educational session. We have nine sessions, nine speakers, to include Amanda and myself, healthcare consultant David Zetter, compliance consultant Sean Weiss, former OIG investigator Eric Rubenstein, coding and billing consultant Christine Hall, healthcare attorney Brianna Santoli, and coding and compliance consultant Sonal Patel. So you can visit our website at nschbc.org to register. And again, nschbc.org, go to the upcoming education tab and you'll find it under that tab. So this is our first annual telehealth virtual summit. We're trying to give you everything you, you need in a two-day session. So that's it for today for us, everyone. Please join us next month for another episode of the NSCHBC Edge podcast. My name is Terry Fletcher. Make it a great day, great rest of your month, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.